This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we look at electoral politics in France and the United States. First, the United States. Alan Minsky and Harvey Kay join us to discuss the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, which they see as both a campaign platform and governing program to rescue and renew American democracy. This is more than a to-do or must-do list for progressives, but in their words, a truly compelling and transformative democratic and unifying project. We ask them to explain what the Economic Bill of Rights contains and how they see it as the platform to advance democracy. We also ask whether they think this program is feasible and realizable as campaign strategy, given the configuration of our political winner-take-all system. We then turn to the recent election in France, where incumbent Emmanuel Macron won with a 17% margin over Marine Le Pen. The period leading up to this election was far more uncertain. The contest had been narrowed from 12 parties in the first round held on April 10th to the top two vote-getters, the centrist neoliberal Emmanuel Macron and the far-rightist Marine Le Pen. Le Pen edged out the leftist, Luc Mélenchon, by a very narrow margin. The day before the election, we got Sebastian Budgen's analysis of the big question leading up to the election. Where would Mélenchon's vote go in the second round? Though a decisive number seemed to have held their noses to vote for Macron, 26% of the electorate stayed home, in effect abstaining. An insignificant 2% of voters either nullified or turned in a blank ballot. Budgen gives an analysis of the state of the French electorate that holds lessons and warnings for the future. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased have Alan Minsky back with us, along with Harvey Kay for the first time. They're joining us to put forward a platform for the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, which they see as both a campaign and governing program to rescue and renew American democracy. This is more than a to-do list or a must-do list for progressives, but in their words, a truly compelling and transformative democratic and unifying project. We're going to ask them to explain what an economic bill of rights contains and to make the case for it to be the platform to advance democracy. We're also going to ask, is this program realizable or feasible, both as campaign tool and as governing strategy, given the configuration of our political winner-take-all system? So with that, I want to welcome both of you to the show and just introduce Alan once again. He is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Alan and Harvey have been writing about this Economic Bill of Rights, and you can find these articles at commondreams.org. And Harvey Kay is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay and the author of the newly published The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. He's also author of Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and FDR on Democracy, and I think a bunch more books. He was the winner of the prestigious Deutscher Prize in the early 90s. And so with that, I really want to welcome you to Jacobin Radio. So glad, Harvey, to have you here for the first time. And I think what this probably means is we'll have you back to talk about, oh, some of these other things as well. But let's just begin so we can get into the meat And that is that 2022, this year, is primary season, and it's already underway. And there seems to be a consensus across the board that the Democrats are going to lose control of the House and possibly the Senate. In other words, a huge defeat, what Barack Obama called the shellacking. So do you diverge from this thinking? And if so, maybe this is more for Alan. I don't know. What are you seeing on the ground? Well, if we're going to start with the 2022 midterms, there is that expectation. And I think if the Democratic Party doesn't present itself as representing that it's saying basically to the American public, we will, over the next two years, achieve 
a program that will be transformative for our society, that people can see that voting Democrat is something that will produce the change that they want, it won't stall in Congress, then yeah, they're going to get slaughtered, I think, in the midterms. And I think the Democratic Party is bifurcated currently. I mean, of course, there are people who sort of fit into the gray area between the two wings, but there are the neoliberal Clintonite Democrats, and there are the Sanders-inspired progressives. And I think, really, the Sanders-inspired progressives have influenced where the people who are voting Democratic now want to see that kind of vision be pursued by the Democratic Party. And of course, nothing of that came about in these past two years. And this is at the heart of the disappointment. So what we're proposing is that progressives also need to provide that kind of vision, not just, you know, a set of policy proposals, but to animate those policy proposals as the way it will change American society and improve people's lives. And that's why we've settled upon this idea of a 21st century economic bill of rights updating and I think Harvey can speak to this, a proposal that was made by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his second to last State of the Union address in 1944. And again, it was picked up by A. Philip Randolph, by Martin Luther King, and Harvey can speak to those things. But again, the America that is being envisioned by this 21st century economic bill of rights, connecting it to people's direct experience of their lives in our society and pointing out the ways in which your life can be better. And here is exactly how. These are realistic, attainable goals. And together, they will save American democracy from its current crisis, and they will provide a better standard of living for the vast majority of Americans and allow for greater liberty, greater freedom, more free time, a completely, for our society, socially transformative vision. Um, so wait, Alan, so let me just come in there because and I want to get to Harvey and so that we can actually delineate what is in this second economic bill of rights and what makes it different from, let's say, the first or the second iteration of it or 2A, let's call it, before we get to year uh, 2B. But is this something, the economic bill of rights, something you see as a campaign platform or set of slogans, or is you see it as the program that you want to see the Democratic Party Adopt and would it constitute then, as you argue, the winning case for electoral victories? Okay, here's the thing if you're on the American left and you think anything is going to be achieved to improve the actual lives of Americans without engaging with the Democratic Party, as impossibly difficult as that sounds, as much as corporate money is controlling and has controlled the Democratic Party in recent decades. There simply is no other vehicle to achieve the type of changes. Our government interface with our economy and our social structures is actually very strong in the United States. So we need to change governmental policy and to have people participate. If you want a better vision, go in, make the case. Don't shy away from it, because if you're not doing this, do not kid yourself. The kind of broad sweeping social change that we need in America is not going to happen through any other vehicle right now. So with that, I want to toss to Harvey. Yeah, Harvey. So why don't you come in and explain, first of all, you know, just the question that I asked, what's in it and how is it the same or different from what we've seen in the first iteration? Okay, I'm going to give you a summary term for what's in it. The Economic Bill of Rights that were proposing, which is an update of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights of 1944, is essentially, and I know we're using the word progressive, this is the social democratic agenda in one sense, but it's also a social democratic vision. You want to call it democratic socialist? I don't have any reservations about doing that, but more importantly, it's social democratic. And this goes, and I want to go back to FDR on this. So, Part of the problem in our American memory is that liberals, not conservatives alone, but liberals suppress the memory of the radicalism of the FDR years. He ran on a decidedly radical agenda and a vision. He actually called in 1932 for an economic declaration of rights. He said, basically, the Gilded Age and even years before that had literally trumped if not 
basically destroyed the original social contract of the Declaration of Independence. Now, what was that original social contract? A promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And as he laid it out, you cannot have life without the wherewithal for life. You cannot have liberty unless you're empowered to exercise your freedoms and you decidedly cannot pursue happiness if you do not have all of those things I've just kind of referred to. That was the agenda in his mind from the beginning, but it was also a vision. And he repeated that regularly. And it was that vision, as he laid it out, that drew both John Lewis and Sidney Hillman and others to the Democratic Party. Lewis had been a Republican. Hillman had been a socialist. They lined up with the Democratic Party, with FDR's Democratic Party. In 1941, FDR laid out a vision for a world and America after the war in the four freedoms. Then in 1944, he gave a State of the Union message, which was empowered not by his own intentions, but rather by what the American people wanted. In 1943, FDR commissioned from the White House a series of polls, and he asked Americans, what do you want after the war? And they wanted unreservedly guaranteed jobs. They wanted guaranteed health care. And by the way, jobs at a living wage, which he already had called for in 1933. And as well, he wanted education as far as young people could pursue it, guarantees of making it possible. So he, empowered by that knowledge, he went before the American people, well, went before Congress and the American people. He said, we have come to the point in our history where we already accept the basics of a second Bill of Rights. And he's laid out an economic Bill of Rights prefacing it with the remark, needy men, we could say needy men and women are not free. And these are the essentials. And I'll also point out that he didn't necessarily expect this to be accomplished in any short order, because he knew that the combination of the Republican conservatives and the Southern white supremacist (laughs) Democrats would keep it from happening. But he did expect it to be literally, if you like, I don't even want to use the word the agenda, like a manifesto for what we later came to call the greatest generation, which, by the way, in my own personal view, was the most progressive generation in American history. And we can talk about that if you ever bring me back on, okay? Well, the point is that he also warned of rightist reaction, which he did not expect to come from the traditional, what we think of as far right. He expected it to come from capital, and he warned of that. Now, And welcomed their hatred. And and indeed, regularly welcome their hatred. And the fact is that this empowered Americans after the war. Undeniably, there was that rightist reaction, which got bound up with what is known as McCarthyism. Mm. But in 1960, the Democratic Party platform, people can go back and look, it's readily available, was laid out point by point in terms of FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. It was enough to the left that the authors of it wondered if Kennedy could even embrace it. Okay, obviously, Eleanor Roosevelt loved it, but the Kennedy family had a different view of American politics. But he did. He did because that was the only way he was going to get the endorsements. Then in 1965, in the midst of LBJ's great society programs and war on poverty, A. Philip Randolph, in the wake of the March on Washington of 1963, which was his original vision, he proposed a freedom budget. And in that freedom budget, he laid out once again, according to the Four Freedoms and the Economic Bill of Rights. And then, on a tragic note, in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr., not long before his assassination, called for an Economic Bill of Rights as well. So their FDR vision persisted. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say in 2020, Bernie Sanders laid out as well an economic bill of rights online. The tragedy there was Bernie never talked about it when he confronted the Democrats in the debates. And what we're saying is that we know what Americans want, just as FDR, Alan can lay it out, the degree to which Americans want exactly what an economic bill of rights would demand. Well, Alan, I do want you to do that, but I just want to make a comment on what you just said, Harvey, because you're talking about the period in the 30s and 40s, and then again in the 60s. And 
Significantly, you're talking about a period in which there was a strong labor movement. And that's really what pushed Roosevelt to the left. He didn't start out on the left. And then again, Johnson as well. But there again, you're looking at the radicalization of the 60s, but also the height of the post-war boom. And things are very, very different now. And I'm wondering, and I know, Alan, I don't want to eclipse your going into what the specific items are. I do want to hear that. But, you know, the only sort of silver lining I kind of see now in this world are these very successful unionizing drives that we're seeing, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, now even Apple stores, graduate organizing. There's lots of different strikes. And what I think we're seeing is a nascent labor movement, but most importantly, a shift in sentiment so that in the country at large, people are pro-union, whereas they weren't previously. And so I guess the question is, it took a labor movement to get the new deal. Is it going to take this nascent labor movement to move to the point where we can even discuss on a broad scale the Economic Bill of Rights? Perhaps. And it's a great thing that both Harvey and I are unbelievably thrilled about. But with that, I do want to actually just read the 10 uh, entries for the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights that we're proposing, which establish that all Americans have a right to one a useful job that pays a living wage. So a right to that. And that does mean that we do support the idea of a federal jobs guarantee and also the government perhaps operating in that regard as a employer of last resort. Second, a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Initially, we had had that combined with the first point, but we realize now that there has been such pushback from the time of Roosevelt against the union movement that that really needs to, if we're going to propose an actual 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which in theory this does, that's not really what we're proposing as where people's energy should be right now, but that that really should now be just in the U.S. Constitution as one of the entries of a second Bill of Rights. By the way, I do want to point out living wage is in the first one. This is not $15 minimum wage. It is a living wage. That means a person works a full-time job and they are able to support themselves fully in our society. Number three, comprehensive quality health care. All Americans have a right to it. All Americans have a right to number four, complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. Number five, to decent, safe, affordable housing. Number six, a clean environment and a healthy planet. Number seven, all Americans have a right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. Number eight, to sound banking and financial services which of course do not exist in poor communities all across the United States of America. Number nine, an equitable and economically fair justice system. And number 10, the right to recreation and also to participation in civic and democratic life. Now, to the political moment, yes, of course, the labor movement and the rebirth of the labor movement, we have to take this as it's growing and it's now in a very young stage and nurture it, and hopefully it'll expand and sweep across the country. Yes. But we should not lose track of electoral politics either. In 2016, American electoral politics were transformed. After 2016, I think Americans recognize that there are three political tendencies vying for power within the two-party system. On the one hand, there are the Trumpian reactionaries on the far right. In the middle, are the neoliberals who run from the Romney wing of the Republican Party through the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And now, also conspicuous in American politics, are the progressives inside the Democratic Party, as represented by Bernie Sanders, the squad, and the squad which is expanding, okay? I think it is foolish for anybody on the left right now. I think they are accepting their defeat if they do not recognize that this is a battle inside the Democratic Party in which all polling shows among Democrats, which of those two factions do you think is more popular? It is an absolute landslide on issue after issue after issue that the Democratic and Democratic-leaning independents support the progressive agenda. This is not the time to retreat from that struggle, okay? So we believe and we have candidates across the country who are embracing a 21st century economic bill of rights, and there certainly are all across the country In the next few months, candidates who are running as unapologetic progressives, and if people want to see left progressive political and social transformation in the United States, 
This is the time to get involved in those races, to support those candidates, and to defeat the neoliberal Democrats in as many races as we can to make it so that progressives have the upper hand of the Democratic Party. And on that front, no race is more important than the very first or next primary in the country in Ohio on May 3rd, Nina Turner against neoliberal recent incumbent Chantel Brown. If Nina Turner wins that and she is running, embracing the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, that will send shockwaves across the American political system. If she can now upset the incumbent, and she can, she has a great shot to do so, people out there right now should very much get involved in that race and support that. We know that the powers that be in this country do not want Nina Turner in Congress. And guess what that means? That means we want Nina Turner in Congress, folks. <laughs> okay, so Harvey, back to you. Maybe you want to come back on some of the points that I raised, and then we'll take it forward on yeah, how to yeah. deal with this, you know, meritocratic neoliberal wing of the corporate. Yeah, events. well, I mean, let, let's accept the fact that, and we state this in the third piece, which we hope to see come out early this this week. Look, it's been 45 years of class war on the democratic achievements of the long age of Roosevelt, first of all, okay? A class war that included not only smashing labor, it included stripping women of their hard-won rights, and it has involved literally a campaign ever since the late 60s to undo the Voting Rights Act. So we know that there is vast, vast anger on the part of the American people in all their diversity. And the fact is that we, I think we know that unless this Economic Bill of Rights becomes a rallying point, something that unifies these percolating, and look, I mean, well before this last go-round of politics, we saw the, look, I'm in Wisconsin, we occupied the state capitol, okay? We saw the emergence of Occupy. By the way, the Wisconsin Rising was a labor action. That's got to be made clear, okay? But then it's also the case that we saw Black Lives Matter. We saw the Women's March that day. The energies weren't quite captured as one might have hoped. Uh, We saw a fight for 15. We saw the Chicago Teachers Union, the West Virginia Teachers. Look, we have seen for more than a decade the readiness of the American people to rally not only in anger, but in the possibility of achieving things. Now, if we go back, and this is important because I want to correct you on one note, because it took a lot for me to see this. When I did my work on the fight for the four freedoms and FDR and democracy, those two books, one of the things I came to realize is, as I said before, liberals suppress the radicalism, the, the memory of the radicalism of the 30s, but the left has not done itself a favor. It is literally not appreciated that FDR was ready to act from the beginning. The, the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933 provided for the right of workers to organize. And when he signed it, he said no company should be allowed to exist in the United States that does not pay a living wage because he had signed into law a minimum wage and he knew it wasn't enough. Now, that licensed the labor movement. Millions of workers wanted into unions. Now, they found out that the companies figured out how to get around it, which is what led to the renewed anger, by the way, from the bottom up. But it also did something else. The right-wing reaction of capital that wanted to take down Roosevelt pushed him to embrace labor all the more. And thus, in 1935, Social Security and the National Labor Relations Act. This is a sidebar to everything. But I can tell you, the best thing that could happen right now is for capital to go after Biden. Yes. Well, let me ask you just on that. And I clearly what what's going on is that, you know, and I said in the beginning, how realistic is this in the configuration that we have of our two party system where we know it not just at the national level, but at the state level as well, that you've got a progressive base and you've got a population that all of these demands appeals to or this program, all the planks. But then you've got, you know, the corporate meritocratic neoliberal wing who are literally controlling the Democratic yes, Party. I, so you've got not just capital, you got the Democrats to yes, fight. I, I'm going to say this, and this will bring me back in to Alan, okay? Yeah. This Economic Bill of Rights is clearly intended to be embraced in the short term, we hope, by progressives. And we want to see more progressives join Congress. Look, the Democratic mm-hmm. Party's future and the future of the nation hangs on the capacity 
of Americans to push progressivism, elect progressives. I mean, 2022, you know, we only think of 2024 because Trump is a celebrity figure. If we lose in 2022, the House, all bets are off. It is essential for progressives to not only sign on to this, but to make this a cause, which is why I can't stress enough what Alan just said. Nina Turner's campaign in Cleveland is absolutely fundamental. Personally, to me, I think a lot hangs on on that moment. Mm. And then, okay, Alan, in your answer to this, it takes me to this other point, you know, which is the huge obstacle of the role of money in politics, because as we know, these progressive demands, which are economic, social, political, and everything else, once they get into the rhetoric that we see in the in the media, it's all about cancel culture and, you know, critical race, all these other things, which the left is not about. So there's like this, you know, t- you fight the Democrats, you fight the establishment media. Let's hear from you. <laughs> well, also, they'll claim socialism, right? They'll declare that this is a radical socialist agenda when it's not. OK. And in fact, one of the paradoxes right now, as people are more focused on foreign policy, is who over the last 40 or 50, 60 years are America's closest allies? Okay, they're actually all the other richest countries in the world, right? Japan, South Korea, Australia, Western Europe, Canada, right? None of them, none of them have large swaths of people living in dire poverty. You don't have mass incarceration. You do not have mass homelessness. You have on every social index except for aggregate wealth, those countries are doing substantially better than we are. And we can make a case that all of those things should be and must be available to the American people. And we believe that that is a winning hand. What the heck is the moderate Democrats winning hand in the 2022 midterms, right? And you have something like an election victory by Nina Turner on May 3rd overcoming an incredible tranche. They say two to three million dollars are being dropped against her into Cleveland media markets in the last two weeks of this election. Okay, so we win through grassroots mobilization and we show that we can defeat money and we can show that we have a transformative vision presented to the American public, inspire them, let them know that the changes that they want to see as we come out of the greatest disruption that our society has had, arguably since the Civil War, as Bernie Sanders said, but at least since World War II, and that's the COVID pandemic, it changed the very fabric of how we lived our lives to come out of that with a new transformative social vision to make clear to people. And, but, you know, it's yes, it's transformative. Yes, it's visionary. Yes, it will give people their lives back from overwork, from economic precarity. But it's also very achievable because guess what? It exists in all of these other countries. And look, it's not socialism. I mean, Harvey talked about democratic socialism, social democracy. It is social democracy. It isn't a challenge to the operation of capitalist markets. In fact, in social democracy, for the welfare of the average person, those are the best functioning capitalist markets. You know, I'm uncomfortable as I hear myself embracing that term, (laughs) but that's what the program is. And I think one of the great things about a program like this, if you do want to think about an even more visionary future, a more transformative future, are people who are overworked and stressed working 60, 70, 80 hours a week in economic precarity, compiling debt upon debt upon debt for their health care, for their housing, for their education, for the essentials of lives, are they going to have the time and opportunity to work and coordinate to build a better society? No. So this social democratic program provides people the opportunity to think, to live, and breathe in their lives in a way in which they can also work together, be more active as participants in a democratic society, and envision a better society for themselves and for their future generations. And And then let me just have you chime in on this, either one of you. You know, the Progressive Caucus has now endorsed Chantal Brown, right? Am I wrong? That, that's a necessity through the, the way the statutes of the caucus are written. I really think, in all due respect to Representative Brown, she's playing the Progressive Caucus. She is also a member of the New Democratic Caucus. She has such a short record because she just got into Congress. She hasn't done enough to show herself to not be a member in good standing of the Progressive Caucus. So she was basically able to finesse this endorsement because she knew she could. 
But that brings us back to this question, you know, which I think is critically important. If this were just a battle for the hearts and minds of the electorate, I think we would have already won. And, you know, it does require a political movement. It does require a labor movement. But it also means how do, or I'm asking the question, how do we get around money and politics and the stranglehold that, you know, these corporate donors have on the Democratic Party? This is me speaking (laughs) just for me. Okay. I'm not speaking on behalf. I am not an officer of Progressive Democrats of America. Okay. But let me make it clear. I think it is absolutely crucial. And I'm a labor unionist. Okay. I think it's crucial that the percolation that we're seeing, whether it's Amazon and Starbucks or Kellogg's or mine workers in the South, that labor figures, I can tell you that I am demanding this of certain people in my conversations with them, that the labor movement itself, and I'm not, notice I'm not saying FLCIO, FLCIO is itself led by establishment folks, but there are insurgent forces inside of labor. The sooner they come out, in favor of linking labor struggles to an economic bill of rights, the better off we will all be, okay? Because if we wait till post-2022 to see labor embrace these kinds of things, we're going to be back where we started from. Right. So what's the strategy? I mean, you've got candidates and you've got a terrific program here. Tell me what's next. Oh, for us, it's an either or because we, of course, um, want Nina Turner to win. Nina is running and campaigning very much on coordination with our proposal. I mean, we haven't, Harvey and I haven't said this is going to be the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. We understand there's some other people who have sort of competing versions of a 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights. And Nina has her own points of inflection, but she is embracing this as a campaign promise. And for us, a victory by Nina Turner, as you can see, we've got a lot invested in this one race because it's a way to catapult it forward. Senator Vincent Fort down in Georgia's 13th is also running on this. He's going to challenge very conservative blue dog Democratic incumbent David Scott, uh, May 24th primary down there. But a victory by Nina uh, not only does it is going to obviously have a huge impact on the national political dialogue, the ascendancy of the progressives within the Democratic Party will clearly be a headline if Nina wins on May 3rd, because it would be viewed as an upset victory now that Chantel Brown is the incumbent. And the fact that she is running on 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, we're going to just be loudly taking this to every other campaign in the country and say, this works. And guess what? We understand why it works. It connects with people. You know, look, one of the problems we do have with the progressive movement is that you have in poll after poll in the country, and everybody listening to this right now knows this, the top issue when Americans are asked, what is the issue of greatest concern to you? Economics tops the list on balance over the past 40, 45 years. And at the moment right now, once again, with the inflation concerns, et cetera, it's the top concern of the public. The progressive agenda you mentioned where Tucker Carlson et al. are able to create this caricature where the progressives are just about you know, cancel culture and such. Part, there's a real thing to blame there for progressives for not connecting with the issues of the greatest concern of Americans in the language that they express those concerns. And it's economics, economics, economics. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to paraphrase Bill Clinton here because I don't like hearing myself do that even. Uh, but Alan, Alan, he didn't talk economics. He talked economy. And that's the <laughs> difference. Okay. It's not yeah, the yeah. economy stupid. It's not the economy stupid. It's economics stupid. The point is that when we're, what we're talking about an economic bill of rights is exactly how people understand it. Am I going to have a living wage? Am I going to have a voice in the workplace? Are my kids going to be guaranteed an ability to go to college if they wish to or technical college? That's economics or if you like political economy or social economics. It is not the economy. That's the difference. Very good. Well, we have to leave it there, unfortunately, because we've run out of time. So I'll just let the listeners know you can read all three articles that lay out this Economic Bill of Rights on Common Dreams like it's online. Oh, it should be published on uh, Monday, April 25th, 2022. Great. So that's a Common Dreams. Look for it. It is going to be called The Time Has Come for Progressives to Rescue and Renew American Democracy. The time has come to advance and fight 
for a 21st century economic bill of rights. But in the piece, there will be links, presumably, to the two prior pieces. Perfect. And that's what you have right there. So Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Harvey Kay, Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, author of a whole bunch of books, including most recently, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. That's what we're talking about here. What made FDR and the greatest generation truly great? Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We recorded the interview with Sebastian Budgen on April 23rd, the day before the second round of the French presidential election. The big question that we were discussing was what was going to happen to the vote for the left. Though a decisive number seemed to have held their noses to vote for Macron, 26% of the electorate stayed home, in effect, abstaining. An insignificant 2% of voters either nullified or turned in a blank ballot. Budgen gives an analysis of the state of the French electorate that holds lessons and warnings for the future. Pleased to have Sebastian Budgen back with us. We're going to be talking about the French second round of the elections. They're voting April 24th. It's the second round of the presidential election, and the contest has now been narrowed from what looks like 12 parties in the first round on April 10th to the top two vote getters. This is Macron and Le Pen. Le Pen, the rightist Marine Le Pen, edged out the leftist Luc Mélenchon by what looks like a very narrow margin. And so the big question for today's vote is where Mélenchon's votes are going to go in this second decisive round. Will the left abstain? Will they turn in blank ballots? Will some of them vote for Le Pen? Or will they hold their noses and vote for the neoliberal Macron, as we often have to do here in the United States? Sebastian Budgen is with us with his analysis of this election, of the candidates and the prospects. And he's published all of this in Sidecar, which is at the newleftreview.org website. And it's an article that he has called Shrewd Tortoise. Well, Sebastian, welcome back to the show. Let me just tell the listeners that Sebastian is the senior editor at Verso Books. He's a member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism and author of many articles and books. He lives in France. And this latest article that I just mentioned, published now at Sidecar, is titled Shrewd Tortoise. So maybe, I don't know, should we start with what the title means, Shrewd Tortoise, and then move into all the questions about these various formations and possibilities. What is shrewd tortoise? Sure. So the shrewd tortoise strategy is what Jean-Luc Mélenchon characterized his own electoral strategy as. He entered the election campaign with a relatively low poll rating, and a number of other center-left candidates made a lot of noise. There was a lot of hubbub around who was going to be the leading left candidate. And he kept his head down, continued campaigning in a very effective way. And as with the race between the hare and the tortoise, he came out ahead. Great. All right. So I want listeners to keep that in mind as we go through this analysis. But I printed out the election results from Le Monde, and I counted up, I think, 12 different organizations that stood in the first round. But the contest, as you know, I said in the introduction, is basically between the neoliberal Emmanuel Macron, who got 27.85%, the far-right Marine Le Pen at 23.15%. Luc Mélenchon got 21.95%. So that's pretty impressive and very, very close. Can you give us an overview analysis of what you think the first round was about and what it showed? Sure. I think it showed two major things. One is that the established party system that existed for decades in France between the centre-left and centre-right parties, the Socialist Party on the centre-left and the various names that were given for the centre-right party, now currently Les Républicains, the Republicans, that what they call alternance, so one, one winning and one losing, one winning, one losing, for decades, that whole system has collapsed. The first blow to it, of course, was uh, Macron's election in 2017, when the left party, centre-left party, Socialist Party, had its worst ever electoral result, well, ever in its history. 
And the second blow has been this election in 2022, because the centre-right party, which suffered in 2017, but not as badly as the Socialist Party, has also been completely crushed. So the two main pillars of the post-war, well, the Fifth Republic, let's say, system, have collapsed. And now we have a political space has been reconfigured in a tripartite form. On the one hand, the, the right, led by Emmanuel Macron. Secondly, the far-right, extreme right, led by uh, Marine Le Pen. And thirdly, the left bloc, which is led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, what is very striking, the second thing I think is very striking, is that within the left bloc, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's vote is vastly bigger than that of any of the other components of the bloc. So the Green Party uh, got under 5%. The Socialist Party, again, this historic party, which uh, used to govern France, got less than 2% and was only slightly above the vote of the two Trotskyist candidates. And the Communist Party, which chose to stand independently in this election, got just over 2%. So you can see that the difference in the vote is massive. And it shows that the cursor has moved to the radical left wing, if you like, of the left bloc, which is very significant. That's really good. And I wanted there's a couple of things I want to say about that. But first, you just mentioned about the kind of reconfiguration of the political space in France. And it's not unlike what's happened elsewhere. And let's say in the post 2008 crash and everything that's happened since then, including the pandemic. And it's really only in the U.S. and I guess Britain, where you have first past the post or winner take all systems where this kind of reconfiguration isn't quite possible. But it does mean that, you know, for in France, the Socialist Party's virtually disappeared and the Communist Party is way down as well. So given all of that, and I was looking at the various formations, it looks like had the left, there were many different left groupings, most of which I had never heard of before, but had they lined up behind Mélenchon in the first round, if that would have been possible, it looks like he would have beat even Macron, or maybe he would have been second. But in any case, the race on the 24th would then be between Mélenchon and Macron. But instead, it turned out that Mélenchon was eliminated. So was there any way that the left that you just mentioned, which is now the largest bloc in France, is there any way that they could have coalesced somehow to make that happen? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there were four main components of the left. There was Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party, La France Insoumise, under the new label Union Populaire, Popular Unity. There was the Green Party, Centre-Left Green Party. There was the Socialist Party. And there was the Communist Party. And then there were two very small Trotskyist candidates. I think it's, it could have been entirely justifiable to have independent candidacies of the Socialist Party and of the Green Party. They represent very different programmatic political options from Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and they got crushed. So, you know, you, one hopes that they will learn some lessons from that. It's also justifiable to have Trotsky's candidates. They get very low votes, but they use the election campaigns as a platform for their politics. And that's also what was very unjustifiable in this election, was the independent candidacy of the Communist Party. Communist Party had previously been in alliance with Jean-Luc Mélenchon, has no real political differences with him whatsoever, and only really stood to try and maintain itself and try and maintain its apparatus. And of course, it was the difference, just over 2% difference that, that eliminated Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So I think you have to treat them a little bit different. But yes, of course, if there had been a, a united campaign around Mélenchon, who is a polarizing figure, it's not an easy thing to do that, but had that been successful, then yeah, there would have been a, a big breakthrough and there would have been a very different political atmosphere in the second round because it would have been a repolarization of French politics, which has up to now been polarized in a toxic way between right and far right over issues of immigration, Islamophobia and so on, or in order. Instead of that, there would have been a repolarization along uh, left and right axis. And Jean-Luc Mélenchon is an extremely effective politician who would have held Macron's feet to the fire in a way that uh, Marine Le Pen failed to do, for example, in the recent debate. Wow. So well, let me come back to it and just take a note that we're going to come back to actually talking about what their political positions are, including what Macron is. But I want to just get to the sort of strategies or tactics for the actual vote in the second round. Stathis Kouvalakis has written in Jacobin 
that there's a likelihood that many of the left voters who had voted for Mélenchon will abstain or turn in a blank ballot rather than vote for Macron. And of course, we've had the BBC and uh, all the CNN and other outlets that interview people on the street. And basically, you see when they ask people who they're going to vote for, many of the left say they can't possibly bring themselves to, you know, holding their nose and voting for Macron because of the awful things that he's done while in office. So it doesn't seem that there's this sort of sense that we've always had in the U.S. about the lesser evil. And many people on the left here in the United States, you know, do the same thing. But the stakes are so much higher now, given that it's Le Pen that is the greater evil. So and one would presume, and maybe you can you know, elaborate on that, that she would do much more harm in office if elected than Macron. So is this a kind of moralism that seems self-defeating to us on this side of the Atlantic? And what is Mélenchon himself recommending that should be done? The last question that you asked is probably the easiest, which is what is Mélenchon arguing? He has been very clear on one issue. Uh, He repeated it several times in his speech on the night of the elections, which is do not give a vote to Marine Le Pen. There is a section of Mélenchon's electorate, the less politicized and the angriest section, which is tempted to vote for and may well vote for Marine Le Pen, not because it agrees with her program, but because it hates Macron so much and feels that he should be punished for what he has done to France over the last five years. That, of course, is not a position that Mélenchon endorses. Uh, what he hasn't done is said what people should do concretely between the various choices, which are voting for Macron, abstaining, or giving a blank vote. And the electorate will, in its majority, split between voting for Macron and abstaining, I think. It is a complicated issue because, on the one hand, you're right, it is overladen by layers and layers of moralism and of blackmail used by the establishment parties every time that this has happened since 2002, when Jean-Marie Le Pen was in the second round against Jacques Chirac. There is this moralism about we have to keep the fascists out, we have to keep the far right out, so rather vote for the crook than the fascist, which was the slogan in 2002. And we know that every time that that happens, the winning candidate of the establishment parties takes no notice of the fact that their majority is a borrowed majority. It's not a a majority for their program. It's a majority against the other candidate and plow on regardless with their own policies. And that's exactly what Macron did in 2017. He plowed on with a vicious neoliberal program and an extremely authoritarian program, which involved very severe repression against the social movements, particularly the Gilets Jaunes and the movements against the pension reforms. So that is a big problem. On the other hand, And the second big problem, I suppose, is that Marine Le Pen is seen now as a less dangerous candidate than she was seen in the past, partly because of PR operation and partly because she had an even crazier far-right candidate to her right, Eric Zemmour. He was a kind of lightning rod. And so his extreme statements made her look somewhat more moderate. And the third reason why it's complicated is because there is a difference between Macron and Marine Le Pen. Macron is responsible for the situation in the sense that his neoliberal policies and his pursuit of a right-wing electorate, which has meant that he has pursued a very strong law and order campaign, a campaign with strong elements of Islamophobia and immigrant bashing, he has participated in the rightward, far rightward shift of political discourse in France. But He is not the same thing as Marine Le Pen. Now, we can get into a big debate about what exactly Marine Le Pen and her party represent. Are they fascist or are they not? But it is clear that it is a party which has a program and a set of policies at the ready to change the constitution and push through some pretty frightening policies and do so in forms that are extremely concerning for anybody who's concerned about even just basic democratic mores. The final reason why it's complicated is that France is a presidential system, but a president has limited powers if they do not have a majority in the legislative wing, i.e. the National Assembly. And the National Assembly elections are in June, that's to say in two months. Now, often it is the case that the winning president's party gains a majority 
at, at those legislative elections and then is able to push through their program and their policies and the National Assembly simply becomes a, a kind of passive tool. However, it is possible and it has happened in the past that we've had periods of cohabitation, that's to say a president from one party, let's say François Mitterrand from the Socialist Party, and a prime minister from another party, uh, Jacques Chirac, for example, from the centre-right. So you could imagine a situation in which Marine Le Pen would win the presidency, but not the legislative majority, that some other party, even one scenario would be Jean-Luc Mélenchon would win the legislative elections. And then you'd have a very bizarre situation where you would have a extreme right president and a uh, radical left prime minister. So it is a complicated debate, and that's why a lot of people are quite confused about what they're going to do tomorrow. There is a lot of confusion and heated debate about how people are going to act tomorrow. There are people who are saying, you know, if you vote Macron against Le Pen, then you're somehow giving him a blank check, and anyway is pretty authoritarian and racist too. Other people saying, yes, but the conditions under which we can construct struggles against Macron are not the same as those that we would be able to construct movements under a Le Pen presidency and a whole bunch of people saying, you know, it's a rotten choice, which we should reject. The whole choice is, is, is rotten. And if we get trapped every five years into these horrible choices. So it's a big mess. It's a big debate that is dividing particularly the Mélenchon electorate. And we will see tomorrow how it actually pans out. I mean, last time around, the polls gave a much bigger percentage of people who said that they were going to, Mélenchon voters who said they were going to vote Le Pen then actually did so. Ultimately, it becomes when you actually have to put things into practice, it becomes too distasteful. But, you know, we have had five years now of extremely repressive and neoliberal government under Macron. He is hated. What he symbolizes, what he incarnates is absolutely detested by large sections of French society for good and for bad reasons. So there's a lot of affect around Macron, and some of that may well be translated into electoral forms. There's a lot there, Sebastian, and I want to get into some of these positions. But first, I think what you've just clarified, you know, was the implicit question of whether or not a Macron victory would be equally bad as a Le Pen one. And you're basically saying it's more dangerous. And given that, it sort of, again, begs the question of why the left would fail to call for a Macron victory as you gave that that precedent. Uh, I remember that election with uh, Chirac that you hold your nose and people were handing out clothespins very symbolically, uh, as the French always do. So there's that. And then, you know, this is where we get that true tortoise to come to next. But I just wanted to say something about the third round, because I read in, I think it was a, an interview with Abono, if I've pronounced that right, saying that the parliamentary elections in June constitute what would be a third round of this election. And she thinks Mélenchon will win, that he'll be prime minister. I mean, it's two months away. So, as we say in politics, anything can happen. But does that sort of factor into what you're talking about when you talk about the shrewd tortoise? Yes. The argument about holding your nose is obviously an argument about Casting a pragmatic vote, a tactical vote. The problem with holding your nose too long, obviously, is that you have some problems breathing if you have to do it all the time. So what Mélenchon has done since the first round of presidential elections, I think, is pretty shrewd, whether it's tortoise-like is up to you, which is that he's made two propositions. His first proposition is to go on TV and say, elect me prime minister. Now, as I say, that's quite an unusual thing in French politics because often when the president wins, then his party wins the legislative elections and he appoints a prime minister from his own party and they have a majority to do what the president wants. But it's entirely possible for a different party to win the legislative elections. And what Mélenchon is doing with that slogan, elect me as your prime minister, even imagining that that might be possible if Marine Le Pen won, is to sidestep the forced bipolarization between right and far right and say, actually, if we won a legislative victory, we could do a lot of things. Not true that the president has all executive power in France. A prime minister with a legislative majority can push through a lot of social reforms, of decrees, rocking prices, etc., etc. And of course, that can lead to conflicts between the prime minister and the president, and maybe even a constitutional crisis down the line. But 
it is something that people can do. It's not the case that they're now passive simply because by a whisker he didn't get through to the second round. The other important thing that he's done is that he's written to the Communist Party, the Green Party, and the new anti-capitalist party, not the Socialist Party, and said to them, look, we are prepared to talk to you about having joint candidates at the legislative elections and not competing against each other so that we only have one left candidate for each constituency in the legislative elections. That obviously is a massively important thing in terms of uh, securing a majority. But we're not going to do this as a simple electoral pact. You have to recognize that we won the lion's share of this vote. We're not asking you to agree with everything in our program, but we are saying that there are some core elements of our program that are red lines for us. So I think that's an intelligent thing because it's an opening up, including to the far left, I think the first time that that has happened, to the Communist Party and to the Greens. Greens are desperate because they're bankrupt now because they didn't get over 5%, so they they will be keen Mm -hmm. to have such an alliance. So it is an opening up, but it's not an unprincipled opening up. It's not just saying, let's just sink our differences and have some electoral pact that looks completely opportunistic. It's saying it has to be on the basis of the cursor that we have moved to the left on a whole series of social, economic, and ecological issues. So already there, it's having some effect. NPA has, New Anti-Capitalist Party has, to my relief, responded very positively to that. The Green Party, as I say, seems to be responding positively, as is the Communist Party and the Socialist Party in a very amusing way, scratching at the door saying, oh, please, can we be let in, despite having insulted you through the whole campaign. So, you know, if that comes off, then it is not beyond the realms of possibility that a very dynamic legislative election campaign that went out to pull out the abstentionists, which are obviously strongest in the core parts of the nationals electorate, let's say the young, the working class, and the electorate of the non-white communities. If it's able to mobilize those sections, you could imagine a successful legislative campaign that would give a majority. It's not the most probable outlook, but it is a very positive mobilizing perspective. This is all very good. I want to go back just to these last two weeks since the first round. You made mention of how awful Macron's policies have been, and you mentioned the pension reform. And Gilets Jaunes, it's been so badly demonized that if I hadn't had you to talk to Sebastian Budgeon, it would have been hard to know exactly what they represented politically. And we did talk about that on the air here. But I wondered, are they going to be able to vote for Macron? Do we know that? And I guess to talk about that, you should just mention what Macron's positions have been. And during this period between the first and second round, has he tilted more to the right to win over Le Pen voters, or is he tilted more to the left? And what does he represent? Okay, so Macron's sort of slogan is en même temps, at the same time. So he's constantly trying to triangulate between left and right. That's his raison d'etre. He doesn't really have a very positive set of principles or ideology beyond neoliberalism. So he came in uh, when he won in 2017, a lot of people thought that he was going to be not only liberal on economic issues, but liberal also on political issues uh, and social issues. And he said a number of things which got people's hopes up. You know, he said things like colonization was a um, crime against humanity and so on. And it seemed that he was, you know, he was definitely not on the left, but he was some kind of decent, to some people at least, he seemed like he's some kind of decent, democratic, humanist, progressive, as he calls himself. <laughs> The experience of the last five years has proven that he is not that, that he used that line essentially as a way to pluck the Socialist Party chicken, i.e. to get their electorate, which was the bulk of his electorate in 2017. And now he's plucked that chicken, he's plucking another chicken, which is the centre-right electorate. And he's played very strongly a law and order card, a pro-police card, a Islamophobic card, and an immigrant bashing card but always trying to balance it at the same time so that he doesn't appear like he's a complete right-winger. So, And, of course, that's been backed up by you know, actual policies and actions in the streets, the extremely authoritarian way as he and his interior ministers have uh, behaved towards social movements. So, as you would expect, in the second round, he is trying to pluck the Mélenchon chicken, which is to appeal to some extent 
to the Mélenchon electorate. He's tried to steal some of the slogans. Very funnily, he stole the slogan of the new anti-capitalist party, Our Lives Are worth more than their profits in one of his meetings. That was one slogan he stole. He stole the idea of ecological planning, which is a, a notion that comes from Mélenchon. He's tried to make these kind of symbolic gestures and obviously played up the horribleness of the Le Pen candidate. He's been a bit inept, I have to say, because he has put front and centre as part of his programme the idea of pushing back the retirement age to 65, which is an absolute red line for lots of people. And what is it right now? Can you let our listeners know? Well, it's, it's around 62, but it depends on you know, how many annuities you've accumulated. Uh, Mélenchon's argument is that it should be 60. That was originally Marine Le Pen's argument as well. And Macron wants to push it to 65. And that was the core of the big pension reform struggle that caused enormous demonstrations and clashes in the streets just before the COVID crisis. And in fact, the combination of that and the COVID crisis derailed his pension reform. So he basically wants to bring that back, and he's talking quite explicitly about it. But under pressure now, he's saying, oh, well, you know, maybe 64, maybe we can you know, do this over a longer period of time, over several decades and so on. So there's some kind of backtracking on it. But it's, there's a clear lack of comprehension of why this would be a major issue for people in the Mélenchon camp, as it were, the electorate. Now, there's this notion that you can simply, in a very crude way, appeal to them through you know, discursive signals and winks and nudges on certain issues, but basically carry on pushing uh, the same kind of policies. And I, that's very dangerous for him and for the rest of us, because it means that Marine Le Pen has been able to position herself as a voice of the people, of the common people, of working people, and has been able to attack him on social and economic issues, uh, sometimes very effectively. Just the final question, um, Sebastian, and politics in France for the last five years at least has been about immigrants. A lot of it has been about immigrants and immigrant bashing, as well as Islamophobia. But I wonder now that, you know, Russia has gone to war in Ukraine and Macron has sort of positioned himself as some kind of foreign policy broker between the various parties. How much has that figured into this election or will it figure in for the final round on April 24th? Well, yeah, I mean, the election, what has dominated the election has shifted in at least three different phases. So the first phase of the election when Eric Zemmour, for example, announced his candidacy was an extremely toxic, horrible mix of more and more extreme grandstanding on questions of Islam, of racism and so on. Then when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a second phase where the election campaign was dominated by the war. Uh, and that did put the far right, Zimur and, and Le Pen, on the back foot because they were very closely al allied with the Russian regime. They see Putin as a hero. Zimur said, you know, I dream of a French Putin. Marine Le Pen's party was dependent on a massive loan from a Russian bank that was very linked to the regime. Macron was quite good on that question in the debate a couple of days ago. He said to Le Pen, he said, when you go and see Putin, you're not seeing him as another foreign leader, you're seeing him as your banker, um, <laughs> i.e., you know, you have a financial dependency on him. Um, and then the third phase, which is the phase really when um, Mélenchon began to pick up a lot of speed, but so did Le Pen, is the question of cost of living. Now, that is linked, obviously, to the war in Ukraine and the rise of fuel prices and other prices and inflation. But the cost of living became the dominant issue in the last few weeks of the campaign. So we really don't have any time left at all, but let me just ask your personal opinion. Do you think that Macron is going to beat Le Pen? Well, predictions of French elections are a mug's game because they are extremely unpredictable and unstable. The very last polls that we had show a widening gap, something like 55 versus 45. In previous polls, it has been much closer. It's even been 49 to 51. I don't know. I mean, a lot will depend on who turns out to vote. As I said, a large section of the left will not turn out to vote. They will abstain because they don't they see this as a as a horrible choice. Will Zemmour supporters presumably will turn out and force to support uh, Marine Le Pen? Uh, how much of her base will turn out? Her base is much more plebeian, working class. How much of them will actually go out to vote for her 
is an open question and also you know the extent to which macron has been able to mobilize beyond just his own base it's it's an open question you know would it be raining tomorrow you know what will be what will be the feeling of the country when the polls open tomorrow morning i don't know i mean it's still a, a probability that macron will win yeah but definitely a closer much much closer race than five years ago and if he and others don't learn a lesson from that then you know that's a very telling judgment on their their sense of politics sebastian budgen thank you so much for all of that i'm going to say right now we're going to come back to you before the parliamentary elections in june to see you know what has panned out and what the future will hold because everything is in flux as you've so well put and call attention to the article that you have written that appears on sidecar which is the blog for new left review i believe it is newleftreview.org and you will get to Sidecar and you'll find Sebastian's article, which is cleverly titled Shrewd Tortoise. And we've been talking about that. Sebastian is a senior editor at Verso Books, member of the editorial board of Historical Materialism. And do read his Shrewd Tortoise. And thanks so much, as always, for your astute analysis, Sebastian Budgen. Thanks very much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.